You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. You know, and texting and, you know, calling people and all that, so... Anyway, so yeah, I, I see you started the recording, so I guess yeah, we is that okay? Get I think serious. So, well, sometimes yeah. you just do a rolling introduction, you know, you just start ah, recording okay. before you've actually introduced Anything. each other, right? And then you just see how that goes. It's a it's a different that's, way of starting. Well, that's it. I mean, your audience is is used to me by now. I, I mean, I, I I'm I repeat guests, so I'm. <laughs> that's right. Yes, Luther Wiesa. Wait, Wiesa? Am I saying it wrong? Wisa. Wisa. is good. Yeah. That's a very good one. Most Luther Americans Wiesa. don't come close to saying it that well. So Wiesa's Welcome pretty back good. to the podcast, Luther. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I wanted to talk to you tonight. Uh, the topic was materialism, spirituality, and meaning in a nation in crisis. A review of 2021 prefaced by the Adam McKay movie, Don't Look Up. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Adam McKay. Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> yes. So we've got a lot to talk about today. So first of all, do you agree with me, Luther, that this is a nation in crisis? And by this nation, oh, I mean the United yeah. States of America. Yes, there's no doubt about it. We're having some serious problems that are systemic, and they're, they're not going away anytime soon, and they're not going to be easily overcome um yeah absolutely agree and you are you on the same page with me that uh the coronavirus situation has been less a crisis in itself and more a symptom of our our national dysfunction yeah so so it's it's like um it's like a pot you know when you stress it the fractures show up more so it's not it's not that it is by itself the issue, but it reveals the problem more acutely when you have stress added to a relationship. You know, even just couples, you know, like they say when you have a when when you're a couple, it's good to have some difficult times so you can both see how you deal with with things in stress because people get worse. You know, they kind of uh, evolve to their worst selves in stressful situations. So Absolutely. when you add stress to a situation, it already shows how bad things, you know, are, but it kind of reveals that they're already there. The problems are there, but it, it's revealed more when there's stress added. So, and there's not much more stressful situations than a worldwide pandemic and, you know, uh, recession and, 
people quitting and all sorts of problems that are we having that, that are kind of revealing ourselves in the financial crisis in 2008. And, you know, all these things are kind of, you know, revealing to a lot of this generation that things are not as they seem, you know, they're not that great. They're not that rosy. So, yeah. And to, to be fair, I mean, it's not like the United States is the only place that's having a crisis. So we're seeing the exact same kinds of problems, I think, uh, kind of all over the Western world. Uh, oh, I agree. Yeah. It, I, it's, I mean, Brexit happened. A lot of people didn't want that to happen. You know, there's uh, a lot of issues with far right, you know, Nazi like groups in Europe in places that you think would never have anything like that again. Now, wait a minute. Um, is know, that the problem? But, is that we're having problems with where are we having neo-Nazi groups? I heard there was France like had a, a, a good chance of somebody winning. Um, that was like really far right or something. Uh, yeah, I heard that I, French I, politics have shifted to the right. I heard there's been a huge reaction to um, uh, America and they don't want to import our critical theory and they don't want to import our uh, progressive intersectional politics. They've been saying no to Americanism. And you know what? what I don't about? even No, That's not what. No, no. There was a specific party that was very surprising that was like getting 40% of the polls or something a couple of years back. I, I honestly, I'm, I'm not sure the names, but the point isn't really so much right or left. It's just that the fact that people are so much more uh, animistic toward the other side now that they ever were, even in Europe or in the U.S. or, you know, I, I think I really just come back to the fact that I think it's all just economics, special interests kind of collide and they use whatever whatever problem that they can find to heighten it and make it big and then make the other person the enemy it's kind of the same thing that always happens in history and in life and in politics and in nation and wars is always they they have to you know there's got to be a scapegoat you know for your problems uh, and sometimes it's the Americans, you know, they would say in, in China or Russia, the Americans are the problems or in, you know, or in, in America, usually it depends on is it China the problem or is it the left or the right is a problem. But everybody uses a scapegoat. You know, nobody wants to say everything. They want to make their constituents uh, believe and feel like they have it they know exactly what the problem is and it's always somebody else you know <laughs> it's never it's never that group you know it's never right. our own faults it's the other group's fault ah, it's just just uh, human nature just played out more you know because it's whenever we do something wrong we also don't want to know we don't want to say it's our fault we say it's somebody else's fault you know in actual yeah. some languages it's kind of funny in, in arabic or spanish sometimes you would say the vase fell, you know, or, you know, you wouldn't say I broke my arm, you know, that's impossible in, in another language, you know, it's just my arm yeah. broke or something. So taking responsibility for your own behavior sometimes is even kind of embedded in the language where you would say, you know, it just the vase broke like as if it broke itself, you know, <laughs> it's like, no, no you, bro you, you dropped it and you broke it, but that wouldn't even come out in the language. So us not taking responsibility for our actions and our own behavior is a pretty, pretty consistent behavior for humans. You know, it's not a new thing, but it just, as the more we know it, the more we can at least, the more we acknowledge it, the more we can move on and be like, okay, you know, we, we know it's not all 
whoever the other side is. You know, there's some problems with us too. It doesn't matter which side we're on. <laughs> there's always problems. There's pathologies everywhere. Yeah. This is interesting that you bring this up because um, uh, I think that this is part of why this show has never done conspiracy theories. So uh -huh. it seems like the conspiracy theory is a kind of finger pointing. And um, yeah, it, like you said, it's just a form of tribalism of a kind of, well, there's lots of problems and it's, and here's the problem. Like here's the, here's what causes everything, right? You know, right. it's the reptilians or it's, it's, um, it's the reptilians or it's QAnon or it's the white nationalists or it's the Jews, right? It's always like one little group and they're responsible for all the evil and you haven't done anything wrong. And if only mm -hmm. we could just whack that, that group, right, and put them down, we'd have everything yeah. fixed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's shocking because even like Bobby Fischer, one of the smartest people, you know, I'm, uh, the chess grandmaster, you know. He, he, in the end of his life, he was really, like, the, you mentioned the Jews. Like, he yeah. was all about conspiracy theories about the Jews by the end of his life. So it's not like it's just the people who are, you know, IQly challenged or something that, that are susceptible. We're all susceptible to having these, you know, uh, scapegoats that we kind of decide we're going we're gonna to use for all our problems. We're going to hang all our problems on. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also interesting. I think that this, the crisis we're in now, I keep coming back to this thought that because we're locked into so much polarization, everybody's got a story about why it's completely the other side. It seems to me that the only way out of it is actually responsibility for people to start saying like, here's what we've done that's wrong, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I, that's the thing. It's it's hard. It's hard to say that. Like I, I listen to people, uh, you know, friends of mine, lives, whatever they, and they go through their life, and it's always, like I like I said earlier, it's never their fault, you know. And you don't want to tell them, you know, like you know, say, okay, well, you just made bad decisions. I'm sorry, you know. I get life is rough, and <laughs> who who doesn't have hard things in life? We all got we got all we all got our things, but there's some clear decisions that could have been done better. And until you decide to, to put yourself under the microscope, it's, it's, it's tough to see truth. You know, it's tough to acknowledge your own faults, but until you do that, you can't move forward. Like you're saying. So we all have to say, okay, what have I contributed to this problem? You know, what my, what has my party, what has my language, what has my ideas contributed to our current situation? Because you definitely contributed. There's no question every side didn't contribute to the current situation. Uh, you know, if you think that it's just all one side's fault, you're basically wrong. That's all I can say. It's, it's not all one side's fault. Uh, but you have to just say, okay, where is my... Where have I come short? You know, and we all come short all the time. So there's no, I think that's the thing is once you realize that there's just no perfection, you can kind of at least save yourself from having to worry about am I perfect or not? I'm not perfect. And I'm just gonna, that's just kind of already included in my worldview of everybody or everything. You know, there's no perfection. There's pathology everywhere. There's everybody makes mistakes. So let's just, the problem is let's acknowledge our mistakes and our shortcoming and see where we can go through, um, you know. And it, it seems to always come down to ego and, and kind of, you know, tribalism really 
that seems to me to always be the the problem like we're talking about one time you know we 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 all have these lines where we put ourselves you know these these categories boxes that we put ourselves in you know so i am a male i am egyptian i'm tall i'm dark i'm you know whatever you know a good salesman Christian, of course. So you have all these things that I put myself in, and some are are arbitrary. You know, they're choices they made, and some are biological. You can't do anything about them. Well, <laughs> let's not even say that. Some people, for a long time, we couldn't do anything about them. But anyway, so uh, you know, you have to decide. You know, okay, I see these, but how do I rank them? How do I rank this list of things that I am? Do I rank my republicanism more than my Americanism? Do I rank my Christianity lower than my nationality? How am I ranking? And I think that helps us really decide how to live. You know, I'm... I'm <clears throat> what did you think of this movie? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Adam McKay film, Don't Look Up. You know, classic sci-fi uh, premise asteroid yeah. is about to hit the earth and then it takes uh, an incredible turn yeah. that uh, that the world can't mobilize to deal with a very concrete problem mm -hmm. imminent mm -hmm. imminently being smacked by an asteroid oh it's a comet isn't it comet not right. an asteroid yeah comet um, yeah because I don't know if you remember from the 90s movies like Deep Impact and Armageddon and, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> th those were fun, and then this is sort of um, just like a really a different twist on that. That right. the, the main right. problem isn't the asteroid or the comet in this case. The main problem is that our society yeah. is so dysfunctional that yeah. we cannot mobilize to mm -hmm. act in defense of the common good. What did yeah. you think? Yeah. Yeah, at, at first, actually, I wasn't sure if, if it was about global warming or my brother was watching it with me and he thought it was about the pandemic. This mm. is what he, he, he was, all he, all he saw was the pandemic in it. You know, I know they were talking about global warming more, but it, it, it just talks about division and refusal to deal with the problem. I mean, so those kind of things are kind of universal. We can kind of use them for anything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's scary true, you know, what, the, the closeness to reality that this thing describes, it makes you wonder if that's what would happen. I, I know that it wouldn't be that bad. You know, I, I can honestly say I don't think people would be yelling and screaming, don't look up. You know, I, I don't see that happening, especially in the, you know, in the clear and present danger that a, a, a comet would, would represent. You know, people would, would be a little bit more... Uh, so I think they went a little overboard with that, but they're just oh, trying to satire. make their point. You know, yeah, they're just satire. trying to make a point. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to make a point because the point is we're. we're but the thing, the difference is, was global warming is this kind of a slow and kind of mysterious thing that's coming toward us. We're not quite sure how it happened. We're not quite sure how bad it's going to be, but we kind of know something is coming. You know, and it's just similar idea, but. You know, so that's why we have some leeway. But basically, everything is kind of true. And and yeah, ultimately, the two biggest things is tribalism or special interest, 
and greed. And that's what the movie shows, you know, greed, special interests are, are the two fantastically overarching, you know, ideas, you know, our groups, our interests, we, we need to, you know, mind this comet, so we're gonna, you know, yeah. we're gonna do whatever, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna turn the, the rockets around. So it's insanity, you know, you look at it and you see that's insanity, but that's essentially a lot of what's happening now all over the world is nobody wants to be left behind economically between the countries. So that if I take this uh, uh, global warming seriously, I am gonna be economically disadvantaged. And yeah. I don't wanna be economically disadvantaged compared to all the other ones because they won't take it seriously. And yeah. if they don't take it seriously, I don't wanna, take, I don't wanna be the first because right. I'll be the first one to lose economically on this thing. And it's like, can anyone see the bigger picture here? It's it's scary, but it's it's kind of ha how we act, you know. It's uh, especially with the U.S. being the the world you know leader and the richest country, and so now you you know you have this all this wealth, and then you don't want to do anything about uh, mitigating because you feel you feel the pressure. It's a lot. It's hard to stay on top, you know. It's really hard. And the thing is, it's not just uh, you know quote unquote the U.S. It's the United States citizens that have to suffer the consequences of these things more, you know, acutely because of not just because of global warming, but because we have to compete to stay on top economically, militarily, you know, all these different things. They trickle down, you know, yeah. they, they, the, the, the pressure trickles down to the average person. So I don't know. I, I, yeah, there, there are three things about the movie that mm. I really liked. And it's it's. First, there was the uh, the media the media ecosystem. So, yeah. when they had this problem of an ast of a comet coming for the Earth, it was so hard for them to get everyone's attention and orient people to the problem. I thought that was really well done. Mm -hmm. Then there was the capture of our political processes by corporate interests. So that yeah. the spoiler alert. Right. Um, the U.S. initially mobilizes to deal effectively with the comet and then yeah. gives up because the entire government is in cahoots with this. Uh, I don't remember the name now, but this uh, cell phone company. Right. That yeah, wants to Bash, mine the I comet. Bash. 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 They don't want to blow yes. the comet up. They yeah. want to mine the comet. So they need right. the comet to come closer. And then three was the polarization. And the movie, this is what really warmed my heart, is that the movie found a way to integrate. It told a narrative where it wasn't any one of those things by itself. It was the dysfunctional media ecosystem. It was corporate capture. It was polarization. And the way they fed into each other led to this mm -hmm. perfect storm where there was just yeah. no solution, right? Which again, spoiler alert, there's no way to solve the problem, right? We're just, we're just terminally dysfunctional. Um, yep. That, so yep. this is, that's a vision of what's happening to America. That is what stands between me and a conspiracy theorist. I'm not a conspiracy theorist because I don't think there's anybody running the country into the ground. I think that it's this weird, perfect storm of dysfunctional institutions that are spiraling down. And you, see, the thing is, yeah, institution always does one thing: is try to continue its existence. Okay, I got this from 
I think, a, a really fantastic book called The uh, Ma uh, Mass Weapons of Mass Education or something like that. I, I can't even think of it. But uh, what, Mass Instruction. There it is. It was talking about instruction and institution wanting to just continue. And you could just bring that down one more level and say people just have their special interests. Mm -hmm. Beyond institutions, institutions are people, just yeah. a whole mass of people. So people have their own special interests. And this is in economics, you know, we're all going to seek our own, you know, selfish uh, interest and, and uh, what's best for us. Everybody's kind of just going through the motions and figuring out what works. So the media is doing the best for them by figuring out yeah. how to get eyeballs. That's all they care about is how many eyeballs are watching. So it doesn't matter, you know, what doesn't, the truth is not what, what matters. It's the eyeballs that matters. Right. So if you're faced with a decision where you can you have to tell the truth and lose people or not tell the truth and and have a bunch of people watching you, you know, that's I mean it's a very sad and cynical statement that the movie is making that that in the face of that much of a difference, people will still say, "Oh no, we prefer to." But that kind of happens a lot on a smaller level, you know, obviously the comedy is just kind of this really ridiculous point, but Everything else is kind of a, a foreshadow of that. So these little decisions that people make, a million of them, that are just opposed between telling the truth and getting more audiences. Yeah. And that kind of is the same problem that you, you, would, you would face when you're right. It's the same kind of problem you'd face in politics. You know, you can tell the truth or you can get votes. So yeah. <laughs> it follows yeah. you everywhere. <laughs> you yeah, know? this is good. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so, and, and these decisions, I mean, you can't just say, oh, yeah, this person is, is doing one thing or, or the Republicans or the Democrats. It's a very, you can granularize it all the way to the person. Because, and that's why it's so important to tell the truth. And to be honest with yourself, because that's what happens is if enough people tell the truth to themselves and to people around them, maybe we could kind of start to turn the ship of, of this constant misinformation and disinformation because the decisions are not being made on the broad sense. They're being made little by little and they're accumulating in that you, you prefer to make money than tell the truth. That just kind of comes down to that. That's it. Yeah. Get votes versus telling the truth. Make money versus telling the truth. Be popular versus telling the truth. You know, I don't know if it was uh, who was it said, but nobody's more hated than the one who tells the truth. You know, right. I think it was Plato or Aristotle or whatever. So, but that's the whole that's the whole thing is because nobody wants to hear that they're dysfunctional or they have pathology or whatever. Uh, no, nobody wants to hear that. That's not. That's kind of like uh, that's our life. You know, our my Christian experience. That's that's what we've all learned. You know, we know that. You know, philosophy, religion. I think that's a, that's a well-known lesson by now. <laughs> but we still don't want to know the truth. Uh, so, and, and then we gravitate to people who don't tell us the truth because we want to feel good. The value structure is I, I want to feel good more than I want to know the truth. Right. And when the value structure is I want to feel good more than I want to know the truth, then you're going to find people to tell you 
to make you feel good more than tell you the truth. That's why they're more popular, the ones that make you feel good rather than telling you the truth. Because if you cared about truth, you would look for the people who are actually telling the truth, not making you feel good. Yeah. So, so the, um, the people in the media will say anything to keep eyeballs on the show. The uh, politicians will say anything to get the votes. And the corporate leaders will do anything to maximize shareholder value. And all of them you have elevated it. something yeah. above just being a good person, doing what is right, uh, which most basically is telling the truth. Right. Doing, doing what's right and telling the truth. So in, in the terms of politics and, and media, the media is the telling the truth because they don't really control anything. Their whole job is telling. So, you know, they're telling. But then doing what's right, it's, it's more on the corporate side or the government. It's kind of both, you know, telling the truth and doing what's right. It's kind of the balance of both because they have both a verbal function and a kind of executionary function in society. Yeah, what I like about this is that it, it's a way for our two models to actually be uh, harmonized. So my model is that uh, what's wrong with America is this tripart dysfunctionality between different institutions, media, politics, corporations. And you say it's at the individual level, right? But we can explain everything that's happening at the three institutions in terms of what, what's happening at the individual level, right? People are not willing to tell the truth, to put their sense of right and wrong ahead of um, maximization of return, which is right. greed, which is what you call greed. Right. Absolutely. I mean, selfishness, greed, you know, that's absolutely what it is. And I think that's the, the thing is, is the tribalism connects to that greed that, that now I see myself as part of the group and I see the group as myself. And I just I just transferred my greed to the group. That's all. So I transferred my greed uh, to the the corporation I manage, or to the to the political party I'm in, or to the country I'm in, or to the you know race you know quote unquote race that I'm in. So that you you transfer that because you identify with the group so much that they are you and you are them. Yeah. You know, so but politically, I, I really have to say this statement because it, it really is a very good statement for this. There was um, Chris Hedges. I don't know if you've ever heard him or listened to him. He's a fantastic author. I, I very much. He's tough. Back to that one that that tell you the truth. He's he really tells you the truth, and it's hard to hear. And uh, he has a statement. I'm not sure if he got it from someone else, but he says. It doesn't matter if you vote Republican or Democrat, you can't vote against the interest of Goldman Sachs. Hmm. And that really summarizes the system. You know, it, it's like you can do whatever you want, but if, if the corporations are run in such a way and the government is run in such a way that corporations are uh, the highest ideal for the country, you, you're just, they're both bought in a sense that it's just, this is how we're gonna do things. And there's no way against the interest of the corporations or the American yeah. corporations. Is that good or bad? You know, obviously there's some things that are good because that's how it works. The American corporation is is competing with the European corporation and the Chinese corporation and the Japanese corporations and so on. Uh, but then on the other hand, it's the American corporations are exploiting the American people far more than 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 most. So, yeah, but so I think it's far, worse American than that. pharmaceuticals it's, are it's the most... It's even worse than yeah. you think it is. 
Okay. It's not just that the corporations are exploiting people for their own profit. They exploit themselves. So we know from looking at what's happened with American corporations in China that they will do business in China. They will move mm-hmm. advanced specialized equipment production to China knowing that when they do that, it inevitably means China is going to steal that technology and 10 or 20 years down the line, China's going to be cloning whatever they're making, right? It's going to rip off their intellectual property and they will have no recourse. They do it anyway. It's, we've known this since at least the 90s that China is just relentlessly stealing our corporate technology. And corporations keep doing it. They just keep getting into bed with China, which just shows that they can't even look out for the interest of the company. All they can do is short-term shareholder value maximization, right? Well, that's part of the problem is because they linked the executive pay to the price of shares. Yeah. So a lot of executives, the way they get paid, so again, we're just doing what's best for us here. So they don't care about anything else except the price of the stock before they leave the company. Right. So whatever, get me the most I can get before I can get out of here. And then I don't care if it all goes to hell after I'm done. Right. They absolutely And that's basically, the short term is all that matters as long as I'm around and I'm just going to jump ship before it's all burning. That's it. And that's the strategy I'm going to pursue or that's a strategy I'm going to use to run this company now. There's no long term, you know, 50 years down the road or anything like that. I'm not concerned with 50 years down the road. Uh, I'm here for another 20 years. That's it. I'm glad 20 years from now, China's not going to take us over. By 20 years from now, the stock price hopefully will be up three times. I'll have this much money and I'll be out. That's it. You know, sayonara. (laughs) So it's unfortunate, but it just comes down a lot of times. That's what in reality, when you when you break all these all these boxes that we put ourselves in the end, the last box is me versus the world. That's right. the box nobody really wants to be in because it's a scary place to be. Yeah. Nobody wants to be without anybody. But once you put yourself in that box, and, and eventually you think that way sometimes. If you're honest with yourself, you'll say it. If you're not honest, you, you won't, but you still think it and act that way. And in that box, you know, the corporations could go to hell. The, you know, America could go to hell. The Republican Party can go to hell, whatever, as long as I'm out with a better situation that I came in with. Right. And when, when that's, you know, if you start thinking in that far back, then you really, really have problems because now yeah, everybody teach is you a in business war school of all that that's against the way all. you have to think. Right. Well, yeah. And that's, that, that's, that's the economics. I mean, that's how, that's the whole economical theory that we have is built on that. And, you know, for good, for better or worse, that's how, that's how it functions. But, but you can't you can't say that that's the best way to do things. That may be the way people do things, but that should not be endorsed by saying this is how you should do things. Right. That's completely wrong because that's the opposite of what you should do. We know what you're going to do already because that's how you think. That's fine. We know that. But it's not the best way to think. And it's not the right way to, to act because it's, it's actually the worst thing, the way to, to act. The only thing that restrains people is they are very um, closely uh, 
linked to their country or patriotism or to their company or to their group or to their uh, political affiliation so that they don't decide to do that. And the little bit that holds you back is the good part that's actually saying, okay, I know that if I do this and this and this, it'll be better for me but worse for the company or the country, but I won't because it will be worse for the country or the company. Mm. So it's opposite. So you're not doing what's just best for you. So don't say that. <laughs> so, you know, that is not what you do. So and the good that you do is not maximizing your benefit. The people we appreciate, the people we like and think of and think are good, are not going around being maximizedly selfish. Nobody wants to yeah. be around somebody who's like that. Yeah, you know, we all hate a egoist. We all just despise like the, one of the worst, you know, description of someone is you're you're, you're a narcissist. You're an egoist. You, that's one of the worst. But then on the other hand, we go around telling people be as as narcissist as possible. Right. It's a pathology like we were talking about, but it's it's a, it's a the bottom. You know, the, I think one of the foundational ideas that are just kind of what what are we doing here? We got this conflict of of ideology and it seems like everybody's just juggling the two with no problem. I don't understand how, but. Well, it seems yeah. like there's two uh, vectors for fixing this. You could reform corporate governance structures. So you could change the way CEOs get rewarded, but it also seems like you're suggesting that another thing to fix would be fix the way business people are educated. Yeah, for sure. Our verbal, so verbal, Words are what controls us. We we slowly believe what we we say. You know we, you know, and this is why I try to make point in my life and my in you know, if you're saying to me the best thing to do is do what's best for me, great. You've given me license to do everything. Yeah. Every bad thing under heaven, uh, and and you told me that was the best for everybody. Right. <laughs> Right. You've yeah, just you're, given it's your moral a, duty a, to maximize shareholder value, right? Right. It is my moral if, duty to do what's best for me. Yeah. That's it. Thank you very much. If that includes least, theft, if that includes whatever. Well, and no, it doesn't. It shouldn't involve theft. Uh, right. It, it shouldn't no, I mean, involve I don't, a lot of things. <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm trying to parse this out in terms of libertarian theory. Okay. Court, like the libertarian explanation is that if the market's working efficiently, and you're just doing the best you can at being a player in the market, then you should get maximum utility for both you, the producer, and also consumer, right? So utility is maximized, and so everybody wins as long as you compete as hard as you can. But that, um, that doesn't allow you to engage in force or fraud. So force and fraud wouldn't be taken into account of because they'd be outside of that that um, okay. marketplace. They'd be things so, that are forbidden by the marketplace. So so the statement, so you, you're hedging your statement. And the uh, more you I'm, hedge your statement of saying yeah. maximize the good for you, uh, I don't know. Uh, so why would you say something and then say, well, yes, but this excludes some things. I just think you that know. maximize the good for you is an oversimplification of what uh, they're being okay. taught in business school. This is. Well, just I'm sure it you know, is. I, I'm sure. I had a couple I mean, semesters of economics, and then I read yeah. a lot of Milton Friedman, and <laughs> right. that's my background. You know, I was a libertarian, like a card-carrying libertarian, for many okay. years um, until okay. 2008. It was 2008 that broke my libertarianism, and it was um, that financial crisis, 
And the yeah. crisis itself, I was like, okay, I didn't have a problem with it. It was that um, when that crisis happened, all those uh, all those banks, all those investment banks, right? Lehman Brothers and Morgan mm-hmm. Stanley, and um, they were supposed yeah. to go bankrupt, right? Right. But instead, right. But well, the Lehman Brothers did yeah. go bankrupt, right? But yeah. we, the government bailed them out. AIG, and, the whole, the whole list. Yeah. yeah. But that's not how the market, that's not how the free market's supposed to function. Yeah. And the free market, right. like, you take extreme risks, and then when those risks don't work out, you right. eat the consequences. That's what's yeah. good for the system, is that you get destroyed, because you were reckless. The cost mm-hmm. of you being reckless is your destruction. That means, like, you don't get to have a job anymore, investment banker. That meant an entire class of people were supposed to to leave, exit the industry. Entire corporations were supposed to fold. But um, they sold us the story that they were too big to fail, that if we let them fail, it would be the end of our economy, right? Right. And there was right. still a way. I even thought, I remember being so angry. I was like, there's still a way to do this. You can You could bail these companies out, but you could say, okay, we're going to bail you out, but you're going to get rid of your staff, like your leadership they're all going to resign mm-hmm. over the next five mm-hmm. years. They're not going to get any bonuses. You know, they're going to go. I mean, ideally, I would have said they need to go into exile. That's not realistic. But I wanted them to go into exile. I wanted everybody involved mm-hmm. in investment banking in the U.S. in 2008 <laughs> to be expelled from the U.S. Yeah. for the rest of their lives. Like Roman style, we kick you out of the empire. That wasn't realistic, I know. But still, like, there could have been consequences. That's how the market's yeah. supposed to work. That's right. And that ensures long-term efficiency. Because it says to everybody else, if you screw up, if you take such terrible risks that mm-hmm. you screw up catastrophically, like we will eat you alive and you better be aware yeah. of that. So what I saw was that the market had been captured by those corporate interests and it wasn't a free market anymore. Now it served a small number of people, which meant that yeah. you don't have, you can't no ever get the libertarian yeah. system that you're supposed to get. Right, right. Yeah. You, so something's you totally a- broken down. But uh, I mean, I just don't want to say that like that the whole libertarian free market ethos means it's okay to like, you know, literally eat people alive, like literally, like literally kill other people for your benefit or literally lie. I I mean, I I was a trader man for a few years, you know, Mm -hmm. and the mentality on Wall Street, if it if it makes you money, do it. You know that, you know. And if if it's against yeah, but they're not getting the laws the in the U.S. If the if it's against the laws in the U.S., do it in China. If it's against the laws in China, do it in Colombia. If it's against yes. the laws in Colombia, Venezuela will do whatever. Uh, so it, it, you know there there is quite a bit. It, that, there's no it, it's not for nothing. They, they call it a doggy dog world. They they just that's the mental that's how they see the world. Uh, I think that whenever you give people a lot of freedom, that uh, some of them are going to go down that path, right? Right. But my thing is, we were talking about, like, uh, what are the mechanisms by which it's getting out of control now? And I thought one of them, you keep getting is education, right? We're literally teaching people to think that this is the right way to be. It's not just that when you give people a lot of freedom, they they get nasty, because some people always get nasty when they have a lot of freedom. It's that we literally... They've been teaching these people in business school that that's the right way to be. Right. It's it. You 
there's a culture idea now, again, to telling the truth. Nobody wants to be shame. I don't want to feel shame about anything. Most of the time, that's on the right, they talk about sexuality. You know, these people have no shame. They're shameless, blah, 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 sexuality. But the other side of shame is greed. And it's it's talking about people's, people's uh, you know, uh, other I, bad behaviors that nobody wants to talk about. And that's the other side is like, okay, you know, it's, it's always that side of, you know, the right points at the left and says sexuality, the, the left points at the right and says greed. And it's just shame. Okay, are, are we willing to say, okay, when something is not right, are you willing to tell people that? Or are you excusing people's behaviors because it's profitable? Yeah. And for a long time, it was okay to excuse people's behavior because it's profitable because it was other countries that were reaping the the awfulness. So the United States was yeah. going around in South America killing, you know, people who wanted to socialize their countries or wanted to, you know, uh, uh, nationalize their, you know, uh, gas or whatever. So, you know, they, they were doing that stuff outside the U.S. These corporations were being malicious outside the U.S. So the American people didn't feel anything. They didn't feel anything in the 60s and in the 70s. It was great because they were exploiting other countries. It wasn't the U.S., the national U.S. people, and it wasn't usually Europe. It was South yeah. America and Asia and Africa that they were exploiting faraway places, faraway people. You didn't feel it. You didn't think anything of it. So this concept uh, just kind of grew. Now that it's exploiting the United States population, people are feeling the pinch because they are having a hard time exploiting other countries. Okay. What happens is people get off, they figure out they're being exploited. And they say to these companies, thank you very much. We're, we're tired of your exploitation in Colombia. We're tired of your exploitation in Venezuela or in Kenya or whatever. Have a nice day. We're going to nationalize this. We're going to take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. And they need to get this 8% profit. So they have to find some new places to exploit. Mm. And then they run out of places and then they, they start eating the people in the United States back home. There is a really funny statement because you mentioned Milton Friedman. I'll yeah. never forget, I watched a lot of his videos and the one statement that he really blew my mind with, he, somebody was talking to him about greed and, and he says, what country doesn't run on greed? Show me a country that doesn't run on greed. And it was such a blatant admittance that, that that's just how it is and you should just accept it that just blew my mind. So it's not that he's trying to say that's bad he just says oh yeah everybody runs on greed that's that's how it works i i you know okay great everybody runs on greed but what do you what how are you going to mitigate that it's not a good yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> so just accepting that that happens does not say it doesn't necessarily say that that's a good thing and i think a lot of people have decided that accepting that happens is now a, a not, uh, synonymous with saying that's a good thing to happen. It's not sure. a good thing that every run, everybody runs on greed. It's, it's absolutely not a good thing. I don't know how we've come to, to, the, to the decision, unanimous decision, that that's just fine. That's how it's going to work from now on. 
but anyway, so yeah. I digress. But you know, the, the the concept. I think that's a lot of the reason people are talking about corporations and capitalism and greed and all this stuff now, is a lot of these corporations have run out of people to exploit outside the U.S. and they are forced to exploit in the U.S. and that force is showing this concept of running on greed to be very false. It's showing it, 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 you know, its destructive nature to the U.S. population, yeah. where before it wasn't something they saw. Well, my sense of the mechanism by which sort of corporations are dismantling the U.S., though, is capture of the political system, where um, you can never do anything that's not in their interests. Like, um, mm-hmm. I just a friend of mine is reading John Boehner, He's a former mm-hmm. Speaker of the House, right? John Boehner, Speaker, Republican Speaker of the House. My friend yeah. is reading John Boehner's uh, memoirs, and he has this um, this section he sent to me where uh, Boehner says that uh, Boehner is like, I never wanted to pick on the sugar lobby because I just knew it wasn't worth taking on. But one day I was in a really bad mood, and there was a sugar lobbyist like just in the hallway. And I just wanted somebody to pick on, and I looked to him and just said, your days are numbered, Big Sugar. Something like that. It's not a direct quote, but something to that effect. That's He just basically wanted to put a little bit of fear of God into this sugar lobbyist. And then he says, I was just kidding around, but for the next three days, I was just deluged with, with phone calls from mm-hmm. ma- mayors of small towns, individual voters, all people in the areas I represent, just screaming at me, sugar is their livelihood. And if I did anything to mess with sugar, you know, I'd be ruining my constituency, right? And he's, it was clearly a coordinated campaign against his office, right? Because they, the sugar industry figured he was up to something. And um, that's just an example of corporate capture, right? Because we subsidize sugar, right? Right. And it's, and then that means we put sugar in all our food and we know sugar makes people fat and causes diabetes, right? Makes us susceptible to coronavirus, um, causes cancer, and then, but we can't, we can't stop because the corporations are running the government, right? So that's an example of how, that's the exploitation, I guess, that you're getting at, right? Right. Yeah, it's a profit. They gotta make profit, and they're gonna use whatever means necessary to continue to make profit and to increase their profit eight percent, hopefully, uh, so they can stay on the market and you know in the stock market because you, yeah. you're gonna die if you don't make eight percent or so. You know whatever the average is for the for the current year, but you gotta keep up with everybody. You know, yeah. I felt that acutely in Verizon. You know, we did whatever. You know, I was there for years, and every year, whatever your numbers were last year. They were about 8% higher this year. You know, if they wanted so many new lines, so many upgrades, so many whatever, well, guess what? If it was 200, if it was 20 last year, it's 25 this year. <laughs> and it's going to be 30 next year. You know, we used to dread the day that we would find out what our quota is for this month. You know, every Wait month we get a new quota. That doesn't yeah. make sense. You, you, there would be no way you could make a lifelong career of working yeah. at Verizon because that's exponential growth, right? 8% yeah. every year. Yeah. Yeah. It's compounding, right? Every year, right? right? It's 8% of what, what well, they 8% more this... than what you had last year. Right, right. Well, the idea is, yeah, go ahead. Do you know how to use the rule of 72? Yep. To, how, to, how, how long does it take at 8%? How long before you double? 
Uh, I think it's uh, like close to 10 years, less than 10 years, nine years, something. So you'd have to mm -hmm. double, like you'd have to sell twice yeah. as much each year within right. 10. I mean, it's just impossible. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, the, the, the thing is, there's two things that happen is a lot of people drop off because, of course, you have these quotas. If you don't meet them, you get fired after a couple of months. It's not like they're going to keep you around if you don't. And then on the other idea is they're saying, okay, well, we have tablets. We have now devices that you can plug into your, to your car that will track it. We have, you know, so they try to expand the range of things that they could sell so they can say, we grew, you know, uh, so many more lines because that's how they're tracked. You know, when they go to their stock share holders, they say, okay, you know, we created a thousand or a thousand, a hundred thousand new lines in this region this year. You know, we had, cause that's, that's basically, I don't think I'm telling any great secrets, um, upgrades where you come in, you already are a Verizon customer and you get a different phone and you get Verizon, was, was kind of nobody cared anymore about upgrades. When I was in Verizon, all they cared about was new lines. You know, if the guy is from AT&T, he comes in and he wants to switch from AT&T to Verizon. Or he doesn't have a phone at all and he wants to open a line on Verizon network. That's all they cared about, new lines. That's how they were tracked on the stock market. That's how the older corporate uh, people got paid and all that. Mm. It was always that. And the idea is we're going to introduce tablets. We're going to introduce this other stuff that will hopefully substitute. You know, it's been a abysmal failure, as my friends that are still working at Verizon have consistently told me. I mean, there's nobody uh, this quarter. Basically, nobody's actually even coming close to the quarter anymore. It's like, okay. from what I'm hearing, that majority of the of the uh, you know sales force don't even meet the quarter, let alone exceed it. When I was there, I would go above the quarter by fifty percent. You know, I would make almost 150% what they wanted, you know, which is why I got whatever, all the stuff I got. But that, that, you know, line gets harder and harder and harder to meet every year. That's just the life of sales. It's a life of sales where I am. It's harder to make uh, sales, even in insurance. You know, I work in, in uh, health insurance now, and that's becoming more hard because of competition. So that's the the good side of things that you have competition and you have more available options to cl to consumers and all these kind of things but then that that kills your growth so now you have to find more i don't know uh, gray areas to find your 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 growth in you know it's not always the up and up because you're kind of when you get to that uh, the business cycle i don't know how much you know about the business cycle but when your mm -hmm. business cycle is kind of in its you're not a new idea anymore you're not a new product anymore you start dying off uh, now you have to really you know try to hold on to whatever power you have left so that's when things get you know when when apple yeah, i don't know if you know this uh, you know google used to have as a part of their mission statement do no evil just that do no evil and as things have gotten more difficult for google to make money they've actually dropped that dropped that a very simple statement that says do no evil yeah has, they, they know they no longer feel that's a that's a good, you know, that they feel like that's not a good statement, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> because it's now harder because there's more competition for Google. You know, when, when Google was alone, it was easy to do no evil. They didn't need to go into the gray areas of, of making money because they were making plenty of money, just normal advertisement, and that was the end of the story. 
But as it becomes more difficult to make that extra 8% every year, and you start feeling the pressure of, man, I got to produce year after year for 20, 30, 40 years, it's a lot harder to make that money now. I have to find new ways. I have to control the political system, you know, uh, try to, you know, exploit people in some random part of the earth, make, pay them 10 cents an hour or something to make that, whatever, you know, that's when you start getting out of the, the normal day-to-day stuff and you get out there and start doing more questionable behavior because it's becoming harder to just meet all your investors wants by doing the right thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, you want to hear something crazy. Um, I've been editing uh, college applications and grad school applications Hmm. from uh, Kazakhstanis out here. Because I'm out here in Georgia and I have some connections to people in Kazakhstan. And uh, I'm editing these essays. I don't know if I should be talking about this, but I'm not going to say their names. These are people who are high up. Many of them are high up in the Kazakh government and they want to go to Harvard for like a master's in business. And uh, they're writing in their essays that privatization and the transformation of our economy along, you know, neoliberal lines was a catastrophe that it led to Mm -hmm. extreme corruption. It led to Mm -hmm. businesses capturing our political system. And they're writing like we're, I'm, I want to go get a degree at Harvard because I'm trying to figure out how to fix this, how to walk back capitalism in Kazakhstan. It's weird. Um, But it seems like around the world, uh, people who are reasonably intelligent and have kind of been in and out of government or in and out of the business world have an awareness that things are broken. They're not working. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like, if Kazakhstan's going to fix it because they're not... They don't have a good reputation, a good track record, rather, of, um, you know, political transparency. They don't have a track record of respecting human rights and have a track record of democracies. I don't know what they're going to do. But, um, you know, we got this problem now. The system's eating itself, and I don't know what to do to fix it. Right. And this is there's a very good book called Capitalism Alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, I think he's a Russian uh, <laughs> author, but he's, you know, been to all the American universities, what have you. And that's what he says is he says people, people have nothing else. It's capitalism or nothing. That's it. That's all you got. And, and that, and then people are like, okay, well, it's capitalism or nothing, but it still sucks. Yeah. So now what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, this idea of the end of history uh, has has lost its all its its power because before it was, oh, well, is it capitalism or communism? Capitalism or communism? Okay, communism fell, and now capitalism is on its way out because people are like, okay, well, I, I get that this is the only way, but this still is terrible and I need something new. And, and all the educated people can at least verbalize it. The uneducated people are just angry and upset and they can't verbalize it, but they're just, they're just as angry and they're even more, more burdened by, yeah. uh, by capitalism because obviously the, the ones that can get off, you know, they, they get out and they try to figure something out, but the ones that really are just stuck doing the nine to five thing and getting paid minimum wage, they're, they're the ones that are really bearing the brunt of the whole thing. So. Yeah. 
and, and that, that's the and that's it. And and people when they say I want something different, people tell them, well, this is it. This is all you got. You know, good luck. But you know, I, I um, would be on chat rooms online sometimes, and I would try to, you know, I'd have people complaining about different things. And the minute I would try to talk about capitalism, no one had anything to say. It mm. was shocking. Like these people can complain about everything, but they don't want to even say anything about capitalism because it's so beyond them to even complain about it, let alone say what's something wrong. What were these people talking about? Well, this is a political one. I was, I was, I was in, I don't know if you've ever heard of Pal Talk, but Pal Talk is a big thing for us Arabs. Uh, back yeah. in the day, it was a big way for Christians and Muslims to talk to each other anonymously about religion. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in the 90s, Pal Talk was it. That was the biggest thing that all, because everybody's scared to talk about religion in Egypt, you know, or any yeah. other world openly, but you're behind a mic, nobody knows who you are. So it became a very good place to air out all the the, the religious problems that we, oh, wow. you know. Uh, so people would, would sit there and, and critique each other. And I used to be in those groups a lot and would sit there and, you know, they would you know basically take every idea, anything that's been criticized in Christianity or in Islam and kind of good and see if they have an answer. Um, I'm not going to get into that. That's not why the podcast is running. But in those groups, I went to some political ones thinking that was a good place to talk about my capitalism critiques. And they would talk about, you know, the, the you know, Democrats and they would talk about Republicans and they would talk about, you know, a lot of different things. But then when I come close to this, you know, capitalism, everybody would just kind of have nothing to say, you know. Uh, the, the, well, the only answers were the usuals, you know, the, the, the Marxists, the communists and the socialists. And that that's it. Nobody really. And, and you know, the easy ones, the, the Marxists and the Calvinism has has been a disputed idea, I would say by now, uh, very well disputed with the fact that China and Russia have both basically stopped being communists. It's like, what do you what do you want? You know, and the, the socialist is kind of the only thing that everybody's is looking at. But even with that, people are still scared. You know, because they, they, they don't. There's a concept. Um, Martin Seligman. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a psychologist. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, he has He's a hedonometricist. He worked on hedonometrics. Yeah. He wants us to measure pleasure instead of measuring uh, like wealth. Yes. Yeah. Positive psychology. Yes. 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 So early in his career, he talked about learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And he says now he's changed his his talking, and he says well, it's not learned helplessness; it's uh, it's learned ability, I think, or something like that. We're just born helpless, but we kind of learned that we can do something about our situation. Yeah, is kind of how how it became. But but it really reminded me of that that people feel helpless against this idea because yeah. so many people have thought, so many people have done everything, and the end result is is we have we're just where we were. Yeah, and nobody seems to know what to how to move forward in this stuff. So since the the topic for today was actually supposed to be materialism, spirituality, and meaning in a nation of crisis, I guess yes. I'd like to return to the question of, you know, <laughs> my my assumption is this is a if the battle we're fighting is at least in part a spiritual one. My mm. belief is that the only way to fight it is through self-examination. 
you've got to look at the mm-hmm. sins that you've committed. You've got to look at what's wrong with you, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then do you think that is there a way, realistically, can we connect that to the political problems in the U.S., the political and economic crisis? Is there some way that by us taking responsibility for our mistakes, for the things we do wrong, we can actually contribute to helping the U.S. reform itself and deal with the problems we have with capitalism run amok? Yeah, I think one thing I was thinking about recently is how we view other people. Uh, A lot of people view other people as objects. I think we all kind of do that to a certain extent. And I think we look for, you know, in experiences, we try to find our pleasure in experiences or in ownership of new objects. Mm-hmm. And this is coming really far down in terms of, and this is maybe kind of where I'm thinking of going next book, but we view these things inherit, we take the pleasure out of those things, either owning more things which you know you, you can see that was was your materialism that's absolutely what it is or even the next level which is experiences you know i want to dive i want to and i do plenty of that i'm not knocking it but those things we value and i think the important is to make the shift if we really really want to change i think our society and and global society global behavior is to shift people's perspective, getting that pleasure that they get from owning something <coughs> or from having experiences, they get that pleasure from people, from meeting mm. people. And first of all, you can't never have enough experiences or own enough things, but you can never finish, you know, what happens is with people, with, with owning things is you lose, you know, the first thing you, you own, it's a lot exciting, but you know the hundred things that you the hundred shirt you you buy you don't care as much as the first one and that you lose that you lose experiences the first time you dive it's nice the 150 times that you dive it's less exciting that's just kind of how it works but if we can maintain i think for me at least i still get more pleasure from meeting it doesn't matter if it's a new person every new person is exciting so if you can continue, because there's 7 billion, 8 billion other people. So that, that in the one sense, that helps us lose our materialism and have a better conscious of other people. And it, it helps limit this crazy materialism that we you know, do whatever to get more stuff. Because now we value people more than things. Yeah. Not just a one particular person or one particular group but people in general more than things. And if you learn to get your satisfaction from people, from meeting people and interacting with people, and you know, I think that's a big part of us moving forward. Uh, what has happened because of consumerism is they, again, with the education thing, they teach people yeah. to get their pleasure from experiences or buying things. You're being taught that when you buy a necklace, when you buy a car, a bigger house, whatever, that will make you happy. 
that you, what you're missing in life is just a faster car. Once you get that faster car, that's it. It's just, and the thing is you're being taught that from a very young age mm -hmm. because the consumer system, they know that, you know, it's a lot more susceptible when you're young to, to, under, to, look, to kind of absorb these ideas. And it takes us a long time to realize these are not the things that matter in life. You slowly realize these things, you know, that, that more and more and more, it isn't going to make any difference at some point. But uh, if you can shift, the shift is not easy because the whole society and the whole system is against you understanding this. Everything is pushing you to be more materialistic and more egoist, yeah. unfortunately. And it's, it's not easy to make that shift to get away from that and to become more, uh, less egoist and more people-oriented. Uh, so it's not an easy answer at all. I don't know if that's what yeah. you're thinking. You know, it's not an easy thing to say at all. And it's like, how do you push against all that? It takes a long time. And I think it takes a lot of self-discipline. And, and, you know, but there is some hints of that going on where... You know, the minimalist, I don't know if you, you know, know what I'm talking about, but there's a big group of people who want to be minimalist. They don't want to have a lot of stuff. They don't want. So I think that is a growing, you know, go ahead. Going back to the farmer, people who are interested in um, farm life or, you know, uh, leaving the cities. To, mm -hmm. I see some of that. I see some sort of a counterculture. People who want to do things themselves instead of having it done for them. You know, I want to make my own food. I want to grow my own food. I want to enjoy those simple pleasures rather than pursuing um, maximal, you know, income and then convenience. Right, right. I think that's... That's hard, though. Yeah, yeah. Completely isolating from society. I mean, in a sense, I mean, with the internet and all that, it helps a little bit. But I, I, I like... To interact with people i can't yeah it's not about isolating i mean this is a counterculture i don't know if you've you know i know there's there's always been in the u.s this um you know the green counterculture people who you know they're they're more into farming and clean food and clean living and you know they'd like to be off the grid that doesn't mean they don't trade um but they they just are a little less plugged in than the rest of us Hippie, it's the hippie thing, right? The hippie yeah. vision, like we're going to go, uh, you know, share the land, right? Lend a hand and share the land. Let me give it away and we'll all live together, right? That's That, right. that dream right. from the 60s is still alive today, you know, right. in different corners of the U.S. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It just seems like um, that's really, really hard. That's huge. I don't feel like that's a tremendous step that a lot of people can't make. And, I, and it's also hard. But uh, maybe we can just be less, be less, uh, try to be a little less selfish, try to give something away or think about somebody else a little bit. Right. It's, it's a slow process, you know. That's the thing is we didn't get to this position in a decade. Yeah. You got to understand, you know, television has been out for 100 years or so. Radio has been out just about the same, more maybe. Anyway, the point is these things have been pumping commercialism and consumerism into society for that long. Yeah. What do you think, though, about the idea that one of the things that we have wrong with us now is the is rage? Like, 
the willingness to try to destroy other people. I don't know if that's a new thing. I mean, if anything, I think that might be less since World War Two and World War One and Two have been. I think they're just destroy yeah. each other. Right, internally, because we can't, we're, we're not quite as, as uh, you know, looking for that scapegoat outside our country. We're just doing it internally. So now the rage is turned inward a little yeah. more than it used to be. That's for sure. So we were much more united against, uh, you know, external enemies than we are now because now we feel like the enemy is within, you know. So that's, that's for sure, uh, you know, that's a thing. And it's just how we see, you know, it's how we see other people. You know, it's, it's, how, it's how we see other people in other countries, how we see our, other people in our own country. You know, it's, it just comes, I don't know. For me, it's always coming down to this idea that people, because people do what, you know, what is, a lot of us are uh, a, a, a product of what's pumped into us. Mm. Whether it's by the media, whether it's by... Uh, you know, a special interest, education, church, uh, you know, a lot of different things. I mean, I don't think anybody is, is anything different than that. I, I, in a sense, a lot of us are, you know, we have, and that's why you have this really changes very slow because you have to kind of get this idea out and this idea takes a long time to get a hold of people's imaginations and then once it takes a hold of people's imaginations, it kind of becomes something that the society as a whole is trying to, to achieve. So it's a slow process. And to change the whole society takes, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of, uh, for, for lack of a better word, indoctrination. Uh, convincing, that's a better word. A lot of convincing. And none of us want to, you know, are easily changed. Like we were talking about earlier, we all have our, our huddles that we are content to be in and we feel like leaving that huddle is is not a good you know it's it's very dangerous to leave the huddle or the group so you you know you have a tendency to uh, stay with the group even if the group is wrong and even if yeah. you have some reservations about the group that's what the worst case of those are the cults you know cults are you know you're like how did you stay in this group for 10 years when you saw all this stuff we say oh well I didn't want to you know, I was worried about whatever, you know, and, and you become, you know, just willing to keep up with everything. You know, yeah. I hear cults are great. Tendency. Sorry? I hear cults are great. Everything I've read and all the documentaries I've seen, like, people have, people get profound, uh, meaningful experiences from being right. in a tightly knit group that has a strong sense of purpose, even if it's just total batshit craziness that they're teaching you. Um that's kind of, a, it sounds like it's a great, it sounds like a lot of fun to me. Somebody's going to take that and just, just put, I hear cults are great and say, have that's you, what you said. Have you seen this Netflix documentary, Wild Wild Country? No. They're this utopian meditation and sex cult and they're trying to like to share things and live in common and they go out to Oregon and they're just, they're building a city. They're so enthusiastic. They're just building and building and building out in rural Oregon. And then, um, but their leader is crazy. And uh, you, you'd really like it because it's kind of, even though they're very about, much about sharing and free sex and meditation and stuff, they actually had a corporate structure that was very much about generating wealth. And their leader would like, 
collect nice yeah. cars and and anyway that all like that system ended up collapsing because uh even though they had a great time inside the cult the cult right. was so aggressive that uh, eventually it brought the FBI down on it oh wow well i watched one that was very similar to that but about the scientologists yeah it's the same uh, thing so, i think with scientology it's i think it's very oh, yeah. similar it, you see the same thing over much, and over how much is all money oriented he wanted he he had a billion dollar tax bill yeah uh, that's what it says and he had this whole fight and he was thinking what what do you do you know how do you get well, what do you do you go live on a boat no just create a religion and then it's religious <laughs> and then you don't oh, yeah. have to pay any so he but, he spent this whole like decades fighting about making his uh thing religious so he didn't have to pay anything and it yeah. was a, you know a church and now that's it it's a tax exempt and that's it you, yeah yeah he's living in a tax exempt yeah creating a religion but part of it too is that at one point one of the schemes he tried was to just live on a boat to avoid taxes oh, did he? Okay. yeah and Great. that's yeah. important because this is people don't know this but this gets back to the esoteric dimension of the show um he elron hubbard lived with a guy who worked for JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, out in Pasadena. He lived in the house of Jack Parsons, who is like a god of um, American occultism. So Jack Parsons was a rocket engineer who was also into the occult and trying to talk to spirits and stuff. And so L. Ron Hubbard and him clearly exchanged ideas. And then Hubbard stole the guy's boat yeah. <laughs> as part oh, of a really? scheme to avoid oh paying gosh. taxes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that guy I, I, it blows my mind. That it's crazy. Well, that, now they're mind. demanding the boat back. There's this movement I'm seeing on Twitter of witches and people who follow Jack Parsons who want their boat back from Scientology. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway. <laughs> It's it's so it's so sad that you can just kind of trace most of this craziness to one of two things, money or sex. It's it's just amazing how you can yeah. just easily trace them to and it's just money or sex are both just traced down again to uh, ego, narcissism. And it's just like wow, I don't know. For me that's just kind of blows my mind how how easily I can trace them at least and I and I don't understand how all these people have these these uh, misconceptions about these things like there's so much more than that I don't know but anyway I uh, yeah it's <laughs> but yeah I agree yeah. with you it is a, a very if, to be a part of a cult you know if, if it's mildly because we are like you were talking about we are desperate for meaning uh, we really are desperate for meaning and most people especially in this in this um, I don't know, uh, religiously deprived age that we're in, people are so desperate for meaning and for spirituality. And unfortunately, it's like somebody who's so thirsty that if you give them a cup of dirty water, they're happy to drink it. Yeah. Because their thirst is so high that it doesn't matter how bad and dirty the water is, it has some meaning uh, and it has some spirituality no matter how corrupt they're happy to consume it yeah um you know so and i think uh, people are slowly realizing that and kind of trying to you know be a little more choosy 
on which drop, which water to drink. Yeah. So, hopefully. Well, I we wonder if that's one of the solutions too. I'm sure. Start I'm a benevolent sure cult. Well, I mean, we we don't we don't have to start one. There's plenty. I mean, I, I don't mean a cult, but there's there's plenty of good good places to join out there that we don't have to start a new one. People, you know, people just need to find you know to 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 have some, uh, you know, people when they try to find a, a life partner, they have all these standards. Mm. Well, they should just have a couple of standards for the group of people they're gonna join. Okay, you know, but then you got to find people. That's been my problem all my life is uh, getting people together and maintaining cohesion with them. Well, I would think that's a, that, that a church does that for a lot of people, but I guess that's falling apart. I don't know what you mean. Yeah. So it's is that the problem you're saying that even I mean, I'm in the same boat in a sense that it's it's hard to find a, a church that I'm happy to join. And I've thought about it, honestly, opening some kind of a a group, you know, um, uh, that, that kind of tries to keep things a little more even in how they think and how they function, you know, but it's, um, I don't know, I'm too much of a hermit, so I prefer to just write in my room and read and yeah. <laughs> so, too many bad experiences. <laughs> so who knows, but I, I, I get you, I get your, uh, you know, but maybe that's why maybe that's why we travel. You know, we're looking for that kindred souls that we can talk to. Absolutely, so. I'm actively looking for the the new religions and the cults here in Georgia. Yeah, yep. let me know. I'm I ready. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the fact is, America has the richest history of that, right? Like, America yeah, is the sure. weirdest place in the world, for and sure. the really interesting stuff always happens in America. So. Yeah. You know, I'm probably yeah. barking up the wrong tree here, but because, uh, you know, Scientology, Jack Parson, right? Uh, Mormonism. Uh, my God, what else is there? The Church of Bob, Discordianism, the whole New Age movement, right? All of that's America, America, America. For some reason, America just generates this, these little like meaning oriented communities like crazy. The Salem Witch yeah, Trials, right. you know. The revivals of the late 19th century yeah. spiritualism, yeah. right? When people, good Christians were doing seances in the late 19th century after the Civil War. Um, yeah. I mean, just weird permutations down near Missouri where I'm from, you know, in Arkansas, just not too far from where I grew up. There's a there's a space Jesus cult. It's not a cult really. It's now it's just a diffuse religious movement. But they, they believe that Jesus uh, also came from outer space and... They have all these sci-fi, early 20th century sci-fi ideas about what Jesus was up to. Um, yeah, it's always around Jesus, it seems. Quite a lot of it, at least. It's yeah, like, I think uh, he's one of the figures you know, that people we, organize we around. Yeah, we can't get away from that, but there's quite a bit of, you know, they just kind of all, we all have our, you know, because Mormonism is too, you know, they have. A, yeah, you know, well, Scientology doesn't really put, they don't put Jesus up on a pedestal. No, He's they don't, but then they use them. a cross, then they use a cross to kind of lower people in. I didn't have a clue about that, but apparently oh, really? other places. Yeah, they have a cross, even though it has nothing to do with Christianity. Everywhere, they got crosses everywhere. Hmm. All my experience with Scientologists, they were very secular, 
very not interested in Christianity type people. Hmm. They're not. They're not. But then, but they have a cross. But then they have the point, the eight pointed figure or whatever. So they they kind of reinterpret. The, they have a cross, and then they have a smaller cross in the middle of it, and yeah. it's supposed to mean something else. But to anybody who's just passing by, he would just think it's a church. You know, they yeah. it's not like they know the the ins and outs of all this. And apparently, nobody even knows Scientology. You have to be with them for a long time to know all the the in, you know the nitty gritty. You know, the how the, how you have to uh, you know pay money in advance and you know get get higher and higher until you actually know the actual religion. Otherwise, you just feel like you're in just a club. You know, and, and that. A lot of places that seems to be a, a way to, you know, as you invest more, then you realize what you're investing in. But now it's too late. You know, you've invested a lot of time and energy. And you, like we were talking about, you have a lot of skin in the game. And now it's harder for you to say goodbye because you spent a couple of years. And it's harder for you to say this is, this is crazy stuff that you guys are saying. Yeah. Uh, because now you 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 have been a part of these people for the last five years, and you've paid fifty thousand dollars to them. So it's become a lot more difficult to attack your own ideology because now you've identified with it so much. Right. So it's it's a it's a it's a very complex you know com, uh, complex theo, uh, um, psychological systems. You know that they kind of yeah. gradually pull people in. Well, in order for these mind. organizations to survive and grow, they have to have a very aggressive structure. They have to be in some way right. like organized in a way that causes them to mobilize their followers to promote the survival of the group, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They have to do so, something. And, and uh, you know, the, with the age I, of knowledge, they have to keep that knowledge hidden with the Internet and all that stuff. Sure. They have to try to do their best to hide that stuff for the well yeah that you know, particular model where you you have some secrets that you keep hidden uh i don't know if that's i don't know i mean i, I it's just one of the various mechanisms you can use to help keep people together i mean sure, another thing sure. is to have people engage in mutual confession i don't know if you've heard about this um completely secular cults they they actually interviewed me for a job they're uh, paradigm academy out on the no. West Coast in California. They interviewed okay. me for a job back in 2018. I didn't know it was a cult. And um, <laughs> I went out there and did a week-long interview, week wow. weekend-long interview. And one of the things they were telling me was, like, central to our practice here at the company is that we, uh, we do a kind of therapy with each other. And as they described mm -hmm. it, it was like you confess your sins to each other. And then everybody's wow. recording everybody's sins. And then yeah, Scientology's done that, you know. Yeah, they do that too, right? So that's yeah, just another yeah. mechanism for controlling yeah. people, right? Right. Now they got all all your your dirty secrets, man, and you better not leave. You better not yeah. do anything. We're there are all these different of, ways of yeah, you know, controlling. On the, the one group. side, it's very it's very healing to actually admit, you know, confess your 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 sins and your shortcomings to someone. That's Absolutely. very healing. On the other side. That's a very, uh, you know, abusive behavior when you put it over and you use it to blackmail people. So yeah. it's a it's a very diabolical balance that they they, you know, when when it's happening, it's a very healing function. But later down, it's something they can use to to use it against you. Uh, so it's it's yeah. it's part well, of this. Terrible Does it even have to be malevolent nature, or malicious? It's just it's just part of the mechanism by which the the institution promotes its perpetuation, right? 
Well, I mean, if it's a good thing, I don't see anything. Well, I mean, Catholic confession has its pluses, right? That was where I was going. Is you, yeah. If you have if you have something where where the confession and, and it's secret and and or a therapist, you're doing the first half of that. You're confessing your your shortcomings to someone, and it's very healing that you do that. And it's something that when you receive forgiveness for, or if you feel like God forgave you for it, it it's an amazing feeling. But then when it's used on the other side to control you, obviously that's a terrible part of it. Yeah. So that's the uh, you know that that's the balance that we you know we so often miss in our lives you know so whatever we can get anything it's unfortunate but anything humans invent and have they can figure out how to use it to harm people or help or help people right I just come to the conclusion that that's just how it is it's just whatever amazingly wonderful things. You use you you think of that you can help people with some diabolical malevolent mind can take that same stuff that you thought was just going to be amazing and helpful to everybody and use it to do harm. Yeah, it does don't seem that think, way. It, don't think that that mind is not around because it's somewhere and yeah. it's going to happen and it's going to do it. So you have to be always take that mind into account. Well, that mind you is know. our mind, right? Right, right, but like most of we're us the, wouldn't we're act the ones on who, it. Hmm? <laughs> but yeah, most of us wouldn't act on it. Somebody is well, we do. To think I know we. I mean, isn't that the whole point it. that the yeah. battle for between good and evil is taking place in our own souls? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. That's yes, you're right. Yeah, it's just you know some people want to go farther than others. That's about it. But we all have parts of us that are, you know, the shadow. That's what Jung talks about: integrating the shadow. You know, and and we have those parts of us that are always trying to, you know, use whatever, use people, use things for our own benefit. You know, that's usually that's as far as I can tell, whenever you ask someone, why did you do something that is so awfully horrible to somebody else? They're going to say, because it made me feel good. You know, that's just the the last part of the answer. You know, even a serial killer or whatever, you know, he doesn't do it just to do it. I don't think anybody has done that. It, they do it because it makes them feel good. I mean, I don't know how it could possibly make you feel good, but that's what they feel, that it makes them feel good to do, to harm other people. So they do it. Uh, so in the end, it's the selfish reasons that we do the worst things we ever do. Right. Um, you know, that's, um, but anyway. But yeah, back to meaning. I think that's, that's what we need to do is we find meanings in our relationship with other people and that's going to be the best way to get out of this this uh, awfulness that we're in, we're kind of in this perpetual, you know, we're, we're kind of repeating history too much, man. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but we really yeah. are. Uh, we, 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 you know, and it's amazing that all these minds and all these, you know, people in this world and all this education and, and all we're doing is repeating history for, you know, decades, centuries, forget about decades, centuries. Um, I, it, it's sad you know, to look at and to say and to, to see all these people that mean well. And I know people mean well. I don't, and this is why I don't, um, you know, I don't have a problem with hearing people is there's generally a part of anybody's arguments generally in which they are trying to do good to others. That's why they're out there. That's why they're doing something or saying this stuff is they, if nothing else, they think they're doing something good. 
and maybe there's something good in it, maybe there's nothing, but they think they're doing something good because nobody is able to do something and know that they're doing something bad. They, it's rare to have someone that's that explicit with their own behavior that I know this is bad, but I'm still going to do it. Most people say, oh, no, I'm doing something good. That's why I'm doing this. They could be right. They could be wrong, but that's how they think. Right. It's very hard to know whether yeah, you're doing yeah. good or evil, too. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, you know, we, you know, there's obviously levels, but yeah. <laughs> Other people usually tell us. That's how, that's how it works. Other, if you have free speech, that's why we like free speech in America and in the world. And yeah. That's how we figured out free speech is a good idea because other people can usually notice the, the bad things we do faster and easier than we do because yeah, they're the ones good. being harmed by it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why they could be like, hey, 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 you're, you're not helping everybody. I'm being hurt by what you're doing. You're, yeah. If you think you're helping everybody, I, I have something to tell you. I'm so not. a mere willingness to tolerate other people speaking is perhaps yes. something that contributes to us becoming aware of our own evil and thus being able to fix it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I, I 100% agree with free speech. That's why I do it. That's why I agree with it. It's, it's, there's no way to change free speech. That's the best thing we got is free speech. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the best mechanism for improvement is free speech. There's no better mechanism uh, because that, you know, speech is back to this thing I was telling you about when you have something you believe and something you understand and now you want to implement what you believe and understand on society you only have one of two ways to enforce what you believe and understand on society yeah. you use we weapons or you use words that's mm. it so if you can't use words well you you have you're only left one other option which well, is what use, the founding fathers did. you can lie that's using words. That's using yeah, words. Yeah, but within words, I feel like there's a bit, there's a very important distinction. I think there's a huge distinction okay. between, you know, arguing. Sure, sure. Good faith and arguments and, and lying. lying. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, that's another distinction. I guess that's a good point. But the point is, you know, that's what the founding fathers did. They tried to do something verbally. Obviously, it didn't work. And then they had to use weapons to, you know, implement their vision of a better country. Ah, yeah. And that's why they built a country that says, you know, we're going to have freedom of speech. That's going to be the most important part because we understand what the king did to us when we try to say something. Right. You see? And they say, okay, well, these other people, when they're in power and somebody's going to try to tell them something, they're going to do exactly what the king did to us. So we're going to have to continue that freedom of speech tradition. That's why we have freedom of speech. That's why right. we like it. So... Um, you know, and, and that's why I believe what they believe. It's, it's one of the biggest mechanisms for change. That's it. You, you don't yeah. have anything better than that because we don't want to sit around fighting each other and killing each other and deciding who's, who's right by how, many, how good the weapons they have are. That's what they did in World War II. So we don't want yeah. to have that again. Thank you very much. We, we, we're good. We don't need to convince each other with bombs anymore. Hopefully. Yeah, I would like to avoid that too. Yeah. So... You know. All right, so this this has gone on. We're now two hours. We're at two hours, yeah, so probably enough. <laughs> should probably wrap it up. Thank you so yeah. much, Luther, for coming on. I think this was actually a very enlightening discussion. I I have a couple points that I've written down that I'm gonna come back to that I like very much. 
Well, I'm, I am glad to be a contributor. I always enjoy talking to you. You know that. We have our conversations without the mics just as long. So, hey, I, I, on the mic, without the mic, I enjoy it either way, Dan. Look forward to having you again. Thanks. Take care. Take care.